Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 14 Epic Mailbag I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those excited by the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel. To answer the critics and the confused, this show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. What's up guys, uh, just wanted to take a break from the scene-by-scene, beat-by-beat commentary that I've been doing. I feel that that's a logical approach in showing how each scene is informed by the previous ones and how they just keep building on top of one another. Next, we'll be doing a breakdown of Jonathan's encouragement to Clark in the barn, we'll take on the bar scene, and Ellesmere, we'll talk a little bit again about super speed, and I know I've skipped over Krypton, but it's only because there's so much there to unpack that I might never actually get to Superman uh, before Batman v Superman comes out. But I think what we'll do is briefly look at how and why it informs the rest of the film. Of course, those are my lofty goals for which I've had no time to prepare this week. Last week, I released a few videos intended to debunk Man of Steel myths, and that used up my time for the podcast. For those videos, I'm trying to pick visual matters for the videos with points that can be clearly expressed uh, in a very simple fashion mostly because I don't have the time to add recording and audio editing to the list of things I've got to do for those videos. So the points have to be short, they have to fit in the subtitles, and there should be some strong piece of visual evidence to make the point or convince the viewer. Usually the actual core of the myth can be disproven with basically a single image or a sequence, but I try to use the myth as a talking point for some larger themes or ideas. For example, in the Superman Saves No One video, I do give brief apologetics for why Clark doesn't talk with his mom about Zod's ultimatum and what to do. We'll go into that more in the future, but that's the essential core of the argument. In the scout ship video, I try to get the viewer to think about the future implications of the technology on the DCCU. More on that later regarding Batman's armor. And In the fetus video, I try to contrast Zod's Krypton against Jor-El's, when all it really takes is to put that active and inactive chambers side by side to sort of prove the point. So I'm trying to provide added value, insight, and provoke thought beyond simply debunking some rather obvious misconceptions. Anyways, I got more videos planned, but between that, real life, and work, the podcast is probably going to have to slow down a bit uh, to maintain the level of quality that I'm looking for. I could easily just give my opinion about matters without preparation or editing each week, just rambling on an hour at a time, but I'd rather have quality over quantity, reason over rambling, and persuasion over pandering. Of course, I don't mind 
uh, a little bit of off-the-cuff answers and pursuant to me not having time, this episode will be that kind of unpolished opinion and perhaps provide inspiration for more in-depth discussion at a future date. Uh, The only prep I've done is to sort of remove some of the questions that were similar or organize them into groups. And of course, some of these questions I've thought about for a while, but I haven't actually prepped any notes or written anything down. Let's just see how many we can get through tonight. So starting off, we have Hector, who wants to know uh, what I think about the fight choreographer's comments. And uh, if you don't know what he's talking about, there was a report for English-speaking networks emanating out of Batman on film. And what they did was they reported on an interview with uh, Los Andes Diario. (laughs) Here you can see the fruit of me not prepping uh, with fight choreographer or coordinator Guillermo Grispo. That's G-R-I-S-P-O. And uh, I believe he said something to the effect of there's the thought that Batman has no chance and that the other Superman will squash him like a bug. But when you see the movie... And how it all comes out, there's a very intelligent explanation as to why they would have a first-hand confrontation, though it seems to be totally at Batman's disadvantage. Well, for the purpose of this statement, I'm just going to read the why as a how. I think that makes the whole statement more consistent because now you're talking about means and logistics through the whole thing uh, rather than switching from means to motive back to means again. And I think that's the way most people have taken this statement. They're talking about apparently there's some sort of very intelligent mechanic for making a fight between Batman and Superman plausible and uh, sensible. Well, the mechanic that everybody immediately jumps to is probably kryptonite, which is certainly traditional and it's plausible, but... I don't find it particularly interesting or very intelligent. I'm not saying that my answers are more intelligent per se, but at least they're more interesting. Uh, The way I sort of approached this was I thought, well, we know that very likely he's going to be in some armor. Uh, At the very minimum, we've seen that footage of Batman in armor during the Comic-Con visual teaser. And a lot of people think that Batman donning armor that uh, nigh invincible or nigh invulnerable like Kryptonian armor gives him a way of standing toe to toe with Superman. But the problem with that is it doesn't matter how strong or invulnerable the armor may be. It doesn't matter because the contents of that armor, namely Batman, can get completely jellified by tremendous Superman level strikes. After Superman hits that armor with the strength that he's capable of, it doesn't matter if the armor is intact. Batman would still turn into mush inside, unless he has a way of controlling the amount of force he takes by, say, reducing it, or he can control the amount of inertia that he experiences inside the suit. And the control of force and the control of inertia both happen to be standard starship technologies. Usually we call them force fields or inertial dampeners. If you watch the two videos that we put on the YouTube channel, you do see that one of the things that we put forward is that the dropship is still out there. And one of the things implicit with having a starship uh, is the need for force fields. You have this object that's traveling at superluminal speeds. It can travel up between land and space like nothing. And even Kal-El's vessel was able to book it from Saturn to Earth easily. Anything traveling that fast through space and through atmosphere, it's got to have shields. Otherwise, the smallest piece of debris that you run into, the smallest little bird strike or anything is going to turn into a colossal issue. Now, the other thing we can notice is that when you're on the bridge of the Black Zero, there are no harnesses, there are no chairs, there are no ways to secure yourself in position if 
anything shakes. That means that they're not expecting anything to shake, and that means that they have inertial dampeners. Inertial dampeners uh, prevents that sort of Star Trek trope of everything shaking inside the ship uh, when they come under attack. And in the larger context of what we're talking about, it prevents Batman from being jellified inside Kryptonian armor. And the last thing that we shouldn't take for granted is the fact that the Black Zero has artificial gravity. While it's in orbit, while it hovers effortlessly in Kandor and in Metropolis, and there's so many other examples of anti-gravity or gravity manipulation or gravity being a part of Kryptonian technology. So this is a race of people that have mastered gravity. So between force fields and inertial dampening and the mastery of gravity, all of these have defensive applications that you could use to prevent a physical threat, like a punch from Superman. Of course, the problem with this kind of approach is roughly threefold. I mean, first of all, you're making Batman very sort of uh, sci-fi-y, much more than his sort of uh, criminal contemporary roots. But I think by the time you put him in a suit of power armor, you're sort of already crossing that line anyways. It goes contrary to in intuition. So when they're dealing with things that affect the fundamental forces of the universe, it's sort of expected that it requires a large starship uh, and huge components in order to operate, not things that are sort of man-portable. When you think of even Kal-El's vessel, that required a C-17 to be delivered. It wasn't just something that was man-portable. The other two problems uh, deal roughly with the implications going backwards and the implications going forwards. If you could have a man-portable force field or inertial dampener that could absorb Superman-level strikes, then why didn't the Kryptonians come up with it first? Why weren't their ships equipped with such defenses to repel something like Superman in Man of Steel? And going forwards, you got to ask the question of, if this is something that allows Batman to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Superman, why wouldn't Batman use it every day henceforth? Well, if this is the way that they're going, and again, I'm not saying that they are, I'm just using this as a thought experiment, but if this was the way that they're going, I think they're all addressable. I mean, we have seen the little floating robots. Uh, we did talk about them way back in episode one. And back there, I kind of suggested that maybe they don't have anti-gravity, but who knows? Maybe they do. And if they do have anti-gravity, that kind of suggests that Kryptonian anti-gravity technology is man-portable. It can fit within the size of one of those robots. Additionally, the shields or the inertial dampeners or the anti-gravity required by something like a starship is substantial. But Batman, he doesn't need to deflect space debris moving close to the speed of light. No, he just needs something to survive Superman who's pulling his punches or likely to be pulling his punches. That may allow for sufficient miniaturization to justify it and make it man portable. And regarding those past and future implications, all you got to do is write in some sort of limiter or danger. I mean, this is sci-fi, so you can make up whatever kind of constraints or limitations or dangers that you want to make up. You've just got to make it so that it's inexcusable to use for any reason except when you're fighting a Kryptonian. So, for example, Batman man's configuration of these force fields and inertial dampeners may require city blocks to be drained of all power in order to operate. Uh, the suit itself might threaten to blow up like a nuke in a populated city, so it's very high risk. The suit could also, say, irradiate the user, making it a high risk of, say, terminal illness or death, something that, say, shortens your life by 10 or 20 years. Now, Batman, at the end of his life, he may say, what the hell? Let's go for it. But any other rational person wouldn't put that suit on. Whatever limitation they put on it, all they have to do is make it the same sort of insane and suicidal thing that only a crazy human like Batman would develop and use and not the more stoic, uh, 
conservative and cautious Kryptonians. Anyways, that's just the example of thinking something through. We want Batman and Superman to fight. We want Superman to have powers in that fight because otherwise it's a boring fight of Batman just beating up on somebody without powers. Where's the fun in that? We don't necessarily want to rely on a crutch or something as boring as kryptonite or the atmospheric weakness. And so we're left with trying to figure out how to keep Batman alive. And the first step is to make him uh, make his exterior invulnerable. So we give him that armor. But then how do we make sure that he doesn't jellify? That's where we introduce some of the more magical aspects of science fiction with inertial dampeners or gravity manipulation or force fields. As all of those things flow naturally out of spacefaring science fiction, you haven't really broken the world by introducing those things. So that's one way they could go about it. I'm not saying that's the way they are going about it. I'm not going to be disappointed if they don't go that way. It's just an experiment to show how we sort of work these things out. That was sort of a tangent. It was just something brought on by the uh, choreographer's comments. The other things that he talks about, he does talk about how they're going to really ramp up that style that... Uh, it's really within Zack Snyder's wheelhouse to make sure that the fights are compelling and interesting and dynamic to look at. So all of that is really exciting. It does give us a hint of something that we already saw a little bit of in Man of Steel. And I'm sure you're aware that my perspective, and I think mo most people's perspective of Man of Steel is that it is a very realistic film uh, in terms of its rationality and the rigidity of its rules. And I love that. I think that's great. I think that's a really good thing uh, for the design and the style and the goals of that film. But one of the places where they sort of dialed that back a little bit, and I don't think anybody's complaining about it, uh, ex well, maybe a little bit, but we'll, we'll get into that when we get into it. I don't know if we're going to do it today, but uh, one of the things where they dialed that back a little bit is with the martial arts, right? Now, I'm not going to start a whole flame war or a debate about the efficacy of martial arts, but let's just say that it is a bit of a stylistic aspect to say you put somebody in with training and suddenly he takes out multiple individuals uh, that are armed and who outnumber him and have training as well, right? <laughs> That is a bit of a trope, and it is one of the places where the film does fall into more uh, traditional action stereotypey uh, storytelling as opposed to being sort of a rigid, realistic documentary style storytelling. And do I mind? <laughs> Not at all. Um, I think it's one of the things that we go to the films to see. It's one of the things that we really want to see from Batman and having the reality dialed back a little bit in order to make the uh, entertainment factor go up there is something I'm completely on board with. But one of the things that can happen with that is once we start peeling reality back is it, it may go out and spread uh, throughout the rest of the story. So once you're saying that uh, martial arts makes you sufficiently effective to take on so many enemies, how much further do you go to say, well, maybe a child with uh, martial arts training can take on multiple enemies? Or, you know, what's the, what's the difference in weight class? What's the difference in skill? What's the difference in uh, all these other kind of things, little factors that tend to be more objective, uh, but where we're allowing this trope to sort of come into the world uh, to make it more entertaining, more interesting. And again... For Man of Steel, I absolutely love the hyper-realism. I love the rigidity. I love the, uh, the care that was taken in observing these rules and maintaining them. But it is hard to write around. It is very tough to maintain that with such a strict level of discipline while still completely serving uh, these comic book characters, these four-color 
uh, extraordinary beings who are just, let's face it, not particularly real uh, in and of themselves. So at a certain point, it may make sense to sort of dial back the reality just to make adaptation easier, to bring in elements from the more fantastic easier. But look, if they can do it, if they can pull it off and do it all believably and do it all realistically and uh, do it in a way that that doesn't insult anybody's intelligence, but still honors the uh, underlying work, I'm all for it. Look, that's I would love that. <laughs> I just don't know that... Uh, Everybody has the chops to do that for an entire movie universe. But it will be exciting to see if that's the way they go or if it, if that's not the way they go. I have an open mind no matter how they go about it. I just want good films. And again, whether it's starkly realistic or not, it doesn't necessarily dictate whether the film is good or not. It certainly, for Man of Steel, made it a very novel story and one of the reasons I really appreciate it. And the next question that we have comes from Maggie, and it's actually kind of related Uh she wants to know what about an all-ages DCCU. Her email basically talks about how she loves Man of Steel, um, but she wonders if it means that the entire DCCU will never be all ages. In other words, it's going to have that same kind of tone or seriousness or mature content uh, as Man of Steel. I think it's a good question. Um, I think it's way too early to call this one. The new era of heroes is still being ushered in. And just as the tone of a franchise can get darker, you may be surprised, but it, it can happen. Franchises can also get lighter. It's actually pretty common for sitcoms to grow more and more cartoonish over time. And particularly with summer blockbuster film franchises, a lot of times those action films or those blockbusters, as their budgets expand, they can leave the more rigidly realistic and start to enter more stylized arenas. And when they do that, sometimes they become lighter or they become uh, more self-referential or they become um, different in tone. And, and, and they can, and they do sometimes become all ages. Um, not a ton of those attempts to go from dark to light are as successful as attempts to go from light to dark, but they exist and they're out there. And uh, if I had prepared more thoroughly, uh, I probably would have had examples lined up, but I'm just doing all this from the top of my head. So um, <laughs> the only ones coming to mind are all bad movies. So don't worry about those. Uh, maybe I'll come back to this uh, when I can think of uh, some better films. But look, for the sake of argument, I think it's a good point. Uh, I don't want to get too much into semantics, but I'd argue that Man of Steel is still an all-ages film, uh, just not an all-audience film. Um, you know, there is some swearing, there is childbirth, there is um, intense violence, and there are very complicated themes that I think even adults fail to pick up on or catch. But I don't think there's anything in there that hasn't been presented to children in the past through, you know, um, fairy tales or, say, the Bible or... Um, or other forms of storytelling, um, albeit, you know, that's less graphic and that's less visceral. And I fully acknowledge and accept that that isn't and probably shouldn't be the standard by which anyone parents, right? Uh, you shouldn't be looking at the lowest possible threshold of what has come before. But I think 
if you know your audience and you know what their proclivities are and what they can see, this is something that can reach any and all ages, uh, just not necessarily all audiences. Some audiences are not going to be comfortable with the content that I just talked about. I don't really know that Man of Steel is acceptable for young kids, just say generally. And personally, knowing how divisive the film has been, I think the appropriate response is to err on the side of caution as opposed to uh, trying to uh, thrust or evangelize the film upon people uh, without common sense, right? For the sake of the question, let me just concede that Man of Steel isn't all ages. Uh, What does that mean for the DCCU? Um, I don't know. I think it seems that Marvel has an advantage here because the fans of today will grow up to be the fans of tomorrow. And the plan for these films is long-term and the franchises can grow up with their audiences. And honestly, I kind of think that the all-ages approach is a better strategy overall. However, the adult-oriented strategy can succeed. Um, Man, I wish I had prepared, but I'm going to guess that if you look at the top 25 worldwide grossing films of all time, I'm going to guess that all-ages films are the exception rather than the rule. Um, I'm not talking about tone, but I'm talking about content. Um, This is pretty terrible, but I I, I can only think of the, say, the top two, so like Avatar and um, and Titanic. But, you know, as a trite example, I don't think many people would consider, say, Titanic a dark film, but nonetheless, it contains, say, nudity, right? So uh, I'm sure uh, The Dark Knight Returns and probably Dark Knight Rises are both in that top 25 worldwide gross as billion-dollar films. And of course, neither of those are particularly um, light or uh, completely family-friendly films, right? So the bottom line is that there isn't one and only one way to do things. Uh, It doesn't matter if one vision works or one vision is more likely to work. Uh, There's enough room here and the market is open enough and most people's minds are open enough that you can try different approaches and take different tacks. It's not like uh, art or life, or investment is uh, a very sort of uh, discrete min-maxing where all the rules are laid out in uh, perfect order and a formula that could be followed absolutely, right? <laughs> uh, if, if the formulas were perfect, then everybody would follow the formulas and everybody would receive a perfect return on all of their investments. And that's simply not how the world works. Uh, All right. I am definitely rambling today. Uh, Just, you know, obviously, um, because it's a more relaxed episode, I do have my scotch here and I'm going to enjoy it. And uh, let's just plow on. So uh, where are we going next? Let's see. Oh, just one other point that I I wanted to cover with uh, with Maggie's question. Um, You know, don't forget that these properties aren't just the movies. Obviously, in the movies are probably the biggest a single investment and the biggest single return on investment. But in terms of overall mindshare and opportunities to make uh, fans of younger audience members, um, DC does have that in other arenas. They have Teen Titans Go. They have the DC TV properties. Um, but overall, I I think Maggie's got a good point. It's a reasonable general criticism that DC uh, overall right now is probably lacking in as much all ages material as say Marvel, as long as you're not talking about going into their back catalog and going into uh, the media that they've already made. Because if you're not talking about ongoing stuff, DC has all of that in spades. So if you've got younger people in your life that you're trying to turn into DC fans, uh, I think one of the best ways is to go into that back catalog and direct them towards uh, the stuff that's already come out. 
All right, that <laughs> that went way longer than I thought. This is uh, this is Doctor Awkward unscripted. So <laughs> let's look at the next question. Uh, Engel he says that he felt the scene about Lois calling out Clark's name could have been clearer. Uh, he puts himself in the cop's shoes and says he would remember what happened and he would tell the FBI. And uh, this is in response to I think uh, what is it episode nine, which I think was about. Um, the secret identity. And I appreciate the response. Uh, I think he's doing what a lot of people do is they put themselves uh, into the character's shoes and they try to empathize with them. And I think that's a good approach. I think that's uh, the first step to um, getting insight into any scene or into uh, any movie. It's, it's that empathy, trying to think things out like the characters would or like the filmmakers would in approaching something. I think the uh, trick, though, is to not to uh, lock into a position too soon, right? I think you should try to uh, see it from multiple positions or multiple goals or uh, a larger picture if you can uh, to see what is probably more consistent, right? I think a lot of times what people do is they lock into position for one perspective and and then they stop there. They make a value judgment or they make a they they take a position. They say this is this is the truth, and then they stop looking any further. Uh, I'm not blaming Engel for that at all. I'm just saying that if you want to get a complete picture or if you want to uh, get the most insight, you may want to try to put yourselves into multiple shoes, right? So what I would suggest is. Uh, in any kind of circumstance and in interpreting any work, not necessarily just Man of Steel, you want to give the filmmakers and all the characters uh, the benefit of the doubt. You want to make sure that you're approaching the scene uh, assuming that the characters are what the film has said that, that those characters are up to that point and that the filmmaker is uh, conveying what they intend to convey, right? So when we're in that scene, and in case I went over it too quickly, we're talking about the scene again where Superman is with Martha and uh, Lois comes up to them yelling Clark's name out loud. In that scene, we're not shown anything that suggests that Lois is foolish or that Superman or Martha is upset at her for calling out his name. For all the mixed response there was to uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2, right? One of the best executed scenes it made it into some of the trailers. Um, it's one of the few scenes that sort of stands out when you think back on it is where Gwen can't help herself but to call out Peter's name while he's costumed as Spider-Man. And then she immediately catches her mistake. Uh, she claps her hand over her mouth and clearly regrets shouting it out. And the scene clearly conveys that the intention is that uh, Gwen was making an excited utterance uh, and that it was an accident. In this scene, we've got nothing to indicate that Lois has made a mistake or that anyone is concerned, right? You know, um, Superman isn't, you know, condemning her or saying shush or anything like that. And so if it's not an accident, if nobody's reacting to it like it's abnormal. And if uh, up till now we've been shown that Lois is intelligent and nobody's concerned, then I think it's completely reasonable to try to read between those lines and find the reason why there is no concern, right? So in episode nine, I gave a series of events that would explain why they're not concerned. I'm probably not going to go over it all again here now, uh, but it was basically that Lois had already uh, shared Clark's identity. And when she did that, it came as no surprise to the police uh, who are going to maintain the secret anyways out of loyalty to uh, Superman. So as long as you're willing to accept that Lois is intelligent and that nobody in the scene is concerned, 
you can come up with any number of explanations or apologetics to sort of reach the desired outcome. Uh, for example, we could say that Lois was picked up by um, Officer Smith, and uh, everybody in town knows that Officer Smith uh, suffers from hearing loss, right? So it's okay that she cries out, uh, Clark, Clark. But I think I, I already mentioned in episode nine that even if Lois had been completely silent, if the cop's future testimony was an issue, just placing Superman at the Kent farm is an issue uh, in and of itself. So assuming that is counterfactual to the film because the film, what it presents is that nobody there is concerned and that it isn't an issue. So that seems to imply that his future testimony will not be an issue. In other words, that they suspect or believe that he's going to maintain their confidence. Uh, we'll probably tackle this a little bit later in one of those other questions. But all of those logistics that we just talked about is not central to the story. This film is uh, Clark or Kal-El's story. And all of those logistics I talked about is more of, say, Officer Smith's story or more of uh, Lois's story. And uh, I don't know that it's necessary for the film to tell us their story when we can sort of figure it out or arrive at those uh, explanations on our own. I think that the scene presents a question, right? You're going to ask, why did the police act as chauffeurs for Lois and why nobody was concerned about their presence? But I think we can answer those questions for ourselves and we don't need it to uh, be put in the film. You know, I think it's obvious that the police don't just drive you wherever you want especially if they're receiving reports that downtown has become a war zone over dispatch, right? Th those are their townspeople. Those are their citizens. Uh, they're there to serve and protect. And if uh, headquarters is saying downtown is a war zone, why are you just driving this reporter wherever she wants to go, right? Unless your passenger has some pretty compelling reason uh, to persuade you. So I think Lois just affirmed something that they already knew or that they already suspected. And that's why in that scene, nobody was concerned about the police's presence or about her yelling the name, right? Now, the scene could have been crafted another way, possibly to avoid that. But again, that might become more about logistics uh, and it, it's less about something central to the story. Uh, but let me know. Um, maybe there's a, a different way that you could write that scene or uh, structure it in a way that's as elegant and gets you to the same place and the same conclusion. As long as we're talking about this, you got a minor collateral matter. Um, you know, Lois doesn't really know Clark by any other name at that point. Uh, no one has said Superman out loud yet. And uh, certainly nobody's said it to Clark for him to answer to. Um, Lois may know intellectually that he is Kal-El, but to her, he's Clark. So um, it seems natural that she'd call out uh, the name that she knows him by and that he'll answer to. And and again, irrespective of what she says or she doesn't say, the PD can put the pieces together uh, merely on sight alone. And the fact that nobody's concerned, I think, implies that there's no reason to be concerned. So they will keep the secret. Uh, that's all an assumption, but I think it's a reasonable assumption. All right. Loyal listener Jonathan has uh, a ton of questions. Uh, no, I'm not laughing at, at the amount of questions. I, I really appreciate him putting forward a lot of, uh, a lot of questions. 
it is called Man of Steel Answers. And what good are answers if we don't have questions? So thank you, Jonathan, for all your questions. And I got to apologize. It takes me a long time to get to these. Uh, the way I approach the episodes is I always try to pick a theme or a... Uh, a goal or a topic. And if the questions don't fit neatly into that topic, uh, or if they're not, you know, related to the topic, then I don't necessarily want them in there to, uh, uh, to be lost. In other words, I want the people who are going to that episode to hear about that topic, to hear the questions that are related to that topic so that, uh, they get the most insight or the more, uh, the most answers for their listening buck. Right. <laughs> and, um, but at the same time, uh, Jonathan's been extremely patient. Uh, he's asked many of these questions a long time ago. So, uh, thank you, Jonathan. I'm going to tackle as many as I can tonight. All right. Uh, the first question I got here is, let's see, uh, why did Zod show images of earth suffering if he wanted, uh, Kal-El's help? And, uh, honestly, I don't think, I don't think we know. Um, but I think we can reasonably speculate. Uh, a lot of this has to do with the fact that the dream machine is uh, unknown or unknowable technology that they didn't go into it. And, um, and I'm glad that they didn't because again, this is a story about Clark and Kal-El. It's not a story about, you know, Kryptonian technology or history uh, necessarily. Uh, those things are related. Uh, they're tangential to it, but that's not the story, right? So they don't need to spend screen time explaining or describing that technology necessarily. The speculation I have is that the dream machine might have an aspect of truthiness to it. Um, what, where I'm getting that from is that the assets and the images, uh, they have to come from somewhere, right? And I don't think either Zod or Jor-El sat down and crafted artistic and symbolic sequences for their respective displays. Uh, Zod in the Dream Machine and Jor-El when he is uh, talking about Krypton's history for the first time to uh, Clark. Maybe. Um, you know, art takes time. It takes effort. And they strike me as busy individuals with much more on their agenda than putting together pretty presentations. So instead, I think that the images and the presentation uh, comes from their consciousness. And I think it's perhaps mediated by some sort of artificial intelligence. It's definitely mediated by some sort of software. And that could mean a certain lack of control or a lack of filter or uh, a lack of ability to withhold the truth. Uh, basically, what you think comes out in the dream machine. Maybe. Again, we don't know. Now, given that their interrogation technology is reliable... And what Zod really wanted out of that exchange was information about the Codex. It might be irrelevant what Kal-El thinks about Zod, no matter what Zod shows him, uh, so long as they're undergoing the process. You know, in other words, Kal-El's cooperation in that scene may have been irrelevant. Uh, it certainly was with Lois, right? She says something to the effect of uh, she tried to resist, but nonetheless, they were able to extract information from her. So Zod may be only asking his, the questions that he asks as a prompt or a way to elicit the thoughts that he needs from Kal-El. Now, if Zod did want Kal-El to join him, the sequence could be seen as a litmus test or, you know, some sort of... Uh, test of his loyalty just to see where he lies. I mean, maybe they're as deeply ingrained into Kal-El as they are in Zod, or maybe his natural birth has made him loyal to these inferior beings. You know, if we think back to the uh, ultimatum, Zod says that Kal-El has hidden among them for reasons unknown. So Zod doesn't know 
how Kal-El feels about humanity. Zod may just be earnestly offering or expecting that Kal-El might want the return of Krypton, uh, even at the expense of humanity. Maybe he wants it as much or as badly as Zod does. Uh, something that comes to mind, I think in the art book, Deborah Snyder makes an interesting remark that uh, in Kryptonian culture, Zod is responsible to adopt the son of his fallen colleague. And that means that he's responsible to adopt Kal-El. I think that was properly excluded from the film, but it does add a potential interesting layer if Zod is this uh, third father figure in the film. There's probably some sort of uh, crazy tripartite symbolism or theme that you could argue there. I'm not going to go there, but um, it's something to think about. All right. Um, next question is, uh, do most people like or dislike Man of Steel? And by nearly every reliable quantitative measure that we have... All of those websites, all of those uh, polls, all of those measures, Man of Steel was received positively. Now, depending on the measures, it was either by a slim and narrow margin or it was overwhelmingly positive. But I've yet to run into any substantial qualitative or quantitative measure that's uh, predominantly negative. I can't answer generalities of whether all people or most people like it, but by every measure that I'm aware of, yes, most people liked it. Um, okay, next question. Uh, why does Superman react to killing Zod, but not to his destruction of Krypton? So uh, the damaging of the chamber and the destruction of the uh, world engine. Um, I addressed this indirectly in that video that just went up on Friday about whether Superman killed any Kryptonian fetuses and whether his remarks are justified. If you think about it um, sort of abstractly, the only... Krypton, uh, quote-unquote, killed was uh, Zod's. Zod's Krypton is the one that needs all those pieces of technology, all those uh, extra trappings, the, uh, the chamber, the eugenics, the uh, terraforming, and the world engine. But Jor-El's vision of Krypton, it didn't require any of that. It uh, allowed for coexistence. It didn't require terraforming. It certainly didn't anticipate or expect uh, eugenic programming anymore. It might not have required a Genesis chamber. So in my view, uh, Jor-El's Krypton still lives or still has a potential to live. And only Zod's Krypton has died. And that's why Superman has no serious qualms or remorse about that particular vision or aspect of Krypton uh, expiring. And I think I point out in the video that even Jor-El points out that that Krypton is dead already. Uh, sort of as a random tangent, when we have that discussion eventually about Superman killing, it's interesting that there is a segment of fans that are quite comfortable with Superman killing sentient but supernatural undead beings. So like ghosts or vampires and the like, right? So things that they have a form of life to them, but are uh, technically undead. So tangentially, this sort of falls into that same category of um, he's simply putting down something that has already gone past its uh, natural time, perhaps. You know, if looked at that way, it may not be a problem. Um, some other random thing that comes to mind is uh, as a dog owner uh, and as somebody who grew up on a farm, perhaps with a certain amount of livestock, these kinds of decisions would be something that uh, a human race Clark may have experience with. Um, so that's just another thought. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Um, does Superman react to the destruction? Uh, that's an entire other show. Um, but, uh, but Jonathan has some insights here. He has some comments. Um, and he says essentially that 
that Superman prioritizes lives over collateral damage to mere things, and that Superman's facial expressions and his performance uh, conveys his reactions. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I think that's that's accurate. I think that's good. I think we'll be breaking down those performances uh, certainly in the future, uh, eventually. And I think that's definitely a fair comment um, that, uh, that the film expects us to get a lot of the content through the performances uh, visually and not to simply spoon feed us everything through necessarily he- heavy handed dialogue. You know, a little bit of that is necessary. A little bit of that uh, is necessary just to make things work. But, you know, I, I agree with him that we can get some of his reactions probably from his faces. I haven't done a, you know, a frame by frame breakdown yet, uh, but we will <laughs> when we get there. We'll see if there's uh, insight that we can get from uh, Superman's reactions. Uh, the next question, let's see. There needs to be some falling action after uh, Metropolis uh, and before the um, drone scene. I haven't really thought too much about this, but instinctually, I think I disagree. And I think I disagree because there's nothing that could be shown that wouldn't lead to additional questions that just eat up screen time and dilute the focus of the story from Clark to Superman's or, or Metropolis or the world. It's something that I keep repeating and we'll definitely have to go over it in a podcast or, or a video or something in the future. But, the, you know, the central focus of this story is Clark Kent and Kal-El. I think there's a reason that Henry Cavill is credited as Clark Kent and Kal-El and not Superman. And, you know, except for maybe a handful of sequences or examples, uh, and again, we'll have to you know, mechanically break that down to really prove it. But I think the film is very tightly bound to Clark's story and Clark's perspective, right? A lot of the questions that people ask are questions about the world at large or uh, other characters or collateral matters or the world or the world reaction or all these kind of other things. Um, But that's not Clark's story uh, from his perspective, from his eyes, right? And, uh, and I'm going to borrow a little bit from, again, Jay Bend. He did a creative uh, analysis video um, where he puts forward a common belief that Superman isn't born, uh, doesn't quite enter the world as Superman until the death of Zod, right? So from that point on, you're uh, tending to tell Superman's story. You're no longer telling Clark or Kal-El's story. You're telling Superman's story. If you do a montage or a cutaway or a series of scenes of Superman saving people or reacting or helping people in Metropolis, now you're telling Superman's story. And this is Man of Steel, not Superman 6 or Superman the Return or, you know, it's not a Superman film per se. And a lot of those other things are, uh, they're more like world building questions or world building stories. When again, this is a very personal, almost POV kind of story for Lark. Now I understand Clark is interacting with the world. That is an important moment in his life as well. You know, seeing the destruction or reacting to what has happened or, uh, you know, what his role is with people. But I think, like I said, anything that they would show in that little gap would suddenly spawn all sorts of other questions. How did he get over Zod so quickly, right? (laughs) Um, You know, why isn't he uh, crying about this? Why isn't he crying about that? Or, you know, how is he able to comfort this person? Or how does he say this? You know, basically, I I feel like they sidestepped the issue, but I think they appropriately sidestepped the issue. 
I don't think there's anything necessarily of value in that moment that wouldn't completely derail the film, right? Once you're getting into that moment, I think you've really tapped into, say, 9-11 imagery way too deeply, way too um, sensitively. Uh, You've tapped into it uh, with maybe way too much realism, at which point you've completely derailed the film, you know? Um, but we'll, we will talk about this again in the future. So I, I think that's the best answer I can give for now. I think sort of that falling action idea or, uh, sort of intermittent scenes would dilute what the purpose of this film was and where we're going with this film. Because at that point, we're starting to tell Superman's story as opposed to, uh, Clark or Kal-El's story. All right. Um, we have the question of why does Jenny think or say that Superman saved them when she doesn't see him destroy the world engine? And um, I think she was simply uh, reacting to the Black Zero going away. And I think that's enough reason for that. So uh, that's that's that. <laughs> Um, Jonathan also uh, lists a number of videos or commentary by uh, notable YouTube individuals who, you know, have bashed on or uh, criticized or mocked Man of Steel. And he asked me to do a, you know, reply podcast to them. And uh, I, I think I answered him in uh, on that point somewhere in the comments. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I imagine I said something sort of like, um, you know, my emphasis on this show is to uh, show the strengths of Man of Steel. And I want to focus on positivity. I know that there's criticism out there. Uh, I know that there's people that dislike the film and uh, bash it. But, you know, I don't necessarily feel the need to give them more of a voice or more screen time or more uh, attention than, you know, they've already garnered for themselves. Uh, you know, much of that criticism, I feel, is unfounded and it, it's it's poorly argued. It's counterfactual. And, and a lot of it is, uh, you know, like, painfully pedantic, like extremely nitpicky. Uh, You know, they're crawling over, say, every line of the film or every moment of the film and just coming up with all sorts of uh, attacks against every little bit of it. And it's vastly easier to uh, throw out a thoughtless comment or to tear something down than it is to, you know, effectively address that comment or build it up. It's really easy to say, for example, that the world is flat or that the sun goes around the earth. But for me to prove otherwise, I'd have to uh, use math and science and proofs that goes well beyond the effort that it took just to make those two thoughtless comments. So my approach is to put thought into what the good is in Man of Steel. And when I'm talking about the good of it, if it happens to answer criticism, or if it answers or addresses a controversy, great, you know, I'm glad. But the focus is not the criticism or the controversies themselves. So that's just an insight on how I approach the questions. I think I also had a discussion with Jonathan in the comments sometime earlier. And additionally, you know, I want to have an answer. You know, I don't want to merely just offer an opinion uh, for something that's plainly divisive and uh, controversial. You know, everybody has an opinion, but, you know, I pride myself in being able to provide uh, at least some answers with some substance, right? So because of that, I'm a little less interested in answering uh, heavily subjective questions. So that's why I do tend towards more diegetic stuff or more uh, technical or logistic stuff. Um, But it doesn't mean that I won't weigh in on subjective things or that I think anybody's subjective opinion is necessarily wrong. It's just that it's less valuable to uh, argue about those things in my opinion. All right. Um, let's see. Next question. 
Jonathan points out that some say that Man of Steel is three movies, a sci-fi one in the first third, a drama in the second, and an action movie taking up the last one. And um, he asks if that's an unfair criticism. I think on a superficial and a visceral level, it's actually probably a fair reaction or reception of the film. But I think if you really delve into the film and you really look at it closely and take it in more than just a purely uh, visceral experience where you sort of disengage your brain and don't think too much, I think each act informs uh, the others. We'll talk about this more in future podcasts, but part of the reason that we're shown Krypton so heavily is because it so thoroughly characterizes Zod and his motives and the technology and so on. You know, one of the things that I'm finding very valuable from uh, editing the uh, videos that I'm doing is it just opening my eyes to seeing how much proof and answers and groundwork is uh, laced throughout the film um, to make things actually very clear as long as you're paying attention. And so I don't think the the film is as disjointed or separate or severable as uh, people sometimes argue or suggest that it is. Uh, for example, when we see Zod kill Jor-El on Krypton, we see there that he isn't driven purely by, say, necessity, right? At that point, in theory, he, could, he just could have taken Jor-El captive. He didn't need to kill him. But what it shows us is that he is passionate and violent. He can't be talked down. He can't be reasoned with, right? And that's sort of an important thing for us to know uh, before he just suddenly appears uh, on Earth. And, you know, other parts of the film showed us that Zod isn't driven by, say, purely utilitarianism. We know, for example, he has a geneticist on board, and in theory, he could start Kryptonian reproduction. But because his vision of Krypton is so narrow and singular, that's not an adaptation or a variation on Krypton that would be acceptable to the Zod that we are shown, right? Sort of the other things that we learn about Krypton that layer out throughout the film, you know, we've got this hot-blooded, uh, swashbuckling outlaw scientist that is Jor-El. And we see that that guy is in Kal-El's genes. It's, it's in his blood. And uh, it's meaningful for that to be there because that gets contrasted against that more sort of stoic and distant AI. And it gets contrasted against the more perhaps caring, cautious Jonathan Kent. So again, we'll definitely talk about this uh, later um, in more of our commentary. But all of the film... I feel, is integral and integrated, and it's very tough to uh, cut or add stuff on uh, something that's already running two hours and 20 minutes. And that leads us right into the next question, which is, uh, does Man of Steel have bad pacing? Uh, that sort of, and this kind of goes to some of my earlier comments. Um, I think this is a very, this is a heavily subjective question, but I personally don't think so. Um, I can see the point of view that from Smallville on, it can be exhausting if you're not invested in the story or if you're not entertained by the action. You know, you've got Smallville, then the World Engine, then Black Zero, then Zod. But I think that the film has given the audience every opportunity to be invested and that the action is slickly executed. So I have no problems with the pacing. Again, the more that I'm sort of breaking down this film, those video responses, I'm really seeing the genius of how some of the uh, scenes are organized and how some of the uh, exposition is delivered just so efficiently, so cleverly. And I almost feel that because the film is so tight, it's easy to miss things. And because people miss things, they have some serious misconceptions about the film. And that's part of the reason uh, I'm doing that video series, to help people go over certain parts of it that they might have missed, might not quite have grasped 
might not quite have seen all the implications for and uh, show that the film did, you know, explain itself or excuse itself, even if it just flew by in the blink of an eye to make it tough for the uh, less invested viewer, right? And I think the fact that people react to uh, some of the pacing, I've had a lot of people uh, comment that the Zod fight goes on and on forever, right? But in absolute time, it's actually only five minutes and it's less than three if you uh, exclude the uh, the monologues, which is practically nothing. It's a blink of an eye. If, if, if you've watched uh, Jackie Chan films or anything with uh, substantive fight choreography, that's actually a pretty tiny chunk of time for a um, for an action sequence. But nonetheless, the fact that this is built and building and building on the past action sequences can make it feel uh, long and can start to kick in some of those feelings of pacing. But we'll talk about this more later in more and future podcasts. But I feel a lot of that is intentional. I think you are sort of to start to feel that that weight, that, that sensation of war. I, you know, literally oppressive, uh, continual combat of war sort of dawning on Clark, dawning on Superman and him starting to realize, yeah, I'm, I'm at war. <laughs> and and I'm going to have to take those steps that happen uh, in war, right? Um, all right. The next question is, does Man of Steel have uh, bad dialogue? And, you know, overall, I think the dialogue is incredibly delicate and carefully picked and deftly performed. Um, Lois is a pretty real person, and Clark mostly acts like a real person until he begins to uh, approach Zod's demise. And that's when he starts to adopt some of the more uh, lofty Shakespearean-style dialogue of Krypton. Both Zod and Jor-El launch into sort of... um, more stylized ways of speaking and uh, speech. And although Pa Kent does have moments like that as well, I think they're excusable for Pa Kent in the sense that he has been preparing for that conversation for years, right? He's been preparing to say all these things. He's been running over, you know, the talk uh, in his head uh, until this opportunity to speak. So all of that I'm okay with. But in absolute terms, like, you know, the question is, does Man of Steel have bad dialogue? Uh, I'm going to say overall, it does not. But does it have examples? Is there bad dialogue in the film? I think the answer is yes, right? Clearly, there are some contentious lines. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as bad as the detractors think. I think that every piece of dialogue has apologetics, can be explained, can be justified. Um, But I think a lot of those lines probably could have been workshopped, smoothed out, or uh, rewritten in a way to avoid these kind of controversies. Uh, I could just give a quick example. Azad says at one point, this ends only one way, either you or I die. Right. And people have made a mockery of that. They say either you or I dying is two different options. So there's more than one way that this can end. Well, look, I'm Dr. Awkward. I'm your DCCU, your Man of Steel apologist, right? So I can explain this. I can provide apologetics for this. If, for example, Zod had said, this only ends one way, you die. Is that literally describing only one way that this can end? No, it's actually describing a set of ways that this can end, right? Any different instance where Kal-El dies would still fall in within the set of ways where he dies. And saying that there is only one way this can end, what he is saying is there is only one set of ways that this can end. And he is describing the set by saying, you die, right? So if you use that analogy, if you extend that out, then 
If he's saying there is only one way you can die, and then he says either you or I die, either you or I die is not two different alternatives. What it is is a mathematical expression of all the sets of possibility that fit the one way in which this will end, right? (laughs) Uh, If you're not a computer scientist like I used to be, if you're not um, used to parsing things strictly logically, then perhaps that's too much of an abstraction for you uh, to follow. But the bottom line is that the line technically works, limited and specific point of view and interpretation. But all you had to do was reword that slightly and that issue wouldn't arise, right? There are apologetics for Feora's lines about morality and evolution, uh, which make the phrasing completely rational and logical. Uh, But again, you know, there's ways that you could have worded it or ways that you could have gotten around those issues. Of the many, many strengths of this film, some of those points of dialogue are actually my one and only uh, real nitpick with this film in the sense of things that prevent this from being a more or less perfect film in my view. (laughs) But at the same time, at the end of the day, as much as I love this thing, it is just a movie. It is just a film and I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. So um, to answer the question, does Man of Steel have bad dialogue? Overall, no, but it does have instances of um, questionable dialogue, Uh, justifiable dialogue, but questionable. All right. Uh, next question. Could there be a Man of Steel trilogy? Um, uh, yes and no. I think a Superman trilogy is possible. I think the Man of Steel branding might get retired after this first film, um, based on sort of the creative intentions of that title. But as I discussed in a previous episode, I don't remember which one, I think titles are driven more by marketing Uh, than necessarily the filmmakers. So who knows Uh, whether it's strictly called a Man of Steel 2 film or, you know, Superman something else or Man of Tomorrow or, you know, any of the other um, ways that they could rename the film. With the current announcement of films that we have, and Henry Cavill has just made remarks that he'd be happy to uh, do this job as long as they're willing to do it, which is a wonderful attitude. And it's the smart and political and, uh, but I feel genuine thing that he's saying, you know, with the current announcement of films, Uh, We will have seen Superman in at least four films by 2019, and that doesn't include the uncalendared standalone Superman film and any other cameos that Cavill uh, agrees to be in or that they write him into. Uh, We don't know how much of an appetite for Superman will be created by Batman v Superman and Justice League, and if people are just really excited to see him, he may get even more cameos right? So as long as the actors are willing, and now we've just learned that Henry uh, is willing, right? And the studios want it. And a big part of that that helps make them want it is if the uh, actor is willing, right? Because if he does, if he's not willing, then uh, it can be a struggle. Uh, it can be a monetary struggle like there was with, uh, for example, uh, Robert Downey Jr. I don't want to get too much into the politics of it, but Robert Downey Jr.'s representation sort of held his appearances hostage. And then Bob Iger actually wanted Downey Jr. written out of the uh, Marvel films, and then Kevin Feige stepped in the gap and uh, ensured everything came out smoothly. But uh, obviously, we don't want or need that kind of uh, drama on the WB or DC side of things. So, you know, we've got the actors lined up, we've got the studio lined up. So all we need is the creative talent behind it, you know, a writer and a director. And as long as there's economic incentive to do it, uh, they will do it. (laughs) They'll go after it. Right. You know, one thing that I maybe have particular insight into as an attorney 
is that as the first superhero, there are unique reasons to aggressively pursue him in the next two decades. First, you know, Superman has finally been unencumbered by rights-related lawsuits. Those have all but been finished. The only remnants of little things out there are unlikely to convert into any kind of issue or liability for DC or the WB. So he's finally free of those things after decades and decades of fighting over his rights, uh, which would compromise you know, the profitability of Superman. If you've got to hand over uh, half of those profits or half of those rights, or uh, you've got to vet things by going through the airs, it's going to chill your desire to use that property. Well, he's finally unfettered. He's finally free of all those things. So they have no reason not to use him. And then second, Superman's domestic copyright enters the public domain in 2033. Okay. Uh, You know, that may seem far off now, But in the span of Superman's lifetime, that's not a whole lot of time. If you think about how long it takes to make movies or how many movies you can get between now and then, it's not actually all that long. So you're talking about uh, a limited period of exclusivity, totally unfettered from legal rights restraints uh, to exploit this property. So there is good reason to go after and drive hard after uh, more Superman. (laughs) So this may be the uh, second golden age of Superman before he uh, re-enters the public domain. And uh, maybe one of these days down the road, I'll talk more about uh, the legal implications of that, the um, the intellectual property rights and all that kind of stuff. Um, I do teach a course on that kind of stuff. So uh, I have to figure out a way to sort of condense it down into uh, something palatable for, uh, for general audiences uh, rather than, say, law-trained students. But uh, without giving a whole lecture on the matter, right? Copyright expires and it protects the creator. However, trademark doesn't expire as long as the consumer can be protected by the mark. In other words, the source of the product. When they see the sign or the mark of the product, uh, it makes them think about the source of the product. And as long as that source is always accurate, that's the goal of trademark, to protect the uh, consumer into you know, quality assurance, knowing where the thing is coming from. And because of that, that protection is indefinite. Copyright, you know, is limited. It, it expires after a certain amount of time. There's a ton more nuance to this. Like I said, there's a whole course or a lecture that I could do on this. But basically, trademark protection is how uh, Disney maintains its hold over things that are generally perceived as or otherwise are uh, public domain fairy tales, right? These are things that are in the public domain. Anybody can exploit them. However, Disney has their own particular spin on them. They have their own uh, trademark over them. But trademark is use it or lose it. Uh, It's indefinite, but you have to keep using it uh, in order to keep it. So that means that the WB has a very strong incentive to just keep economically exploiting and pushing Superman out there as much as possible in the next two decades to make sure that he gets a strong return on investment and is strongly branded in our minds uh, so that they can maintain sort of their protection and hold over him in a similar fashion to the way Disney maintains their control over their fairy tale properties. As Superman is still one of the top five superhero brands in the United States, that is a strong and a safe gamble. So in answer to the question, yes, I absolutely believe, uh, I apologize for the tangent and the rabbit hole, uh, but Yes, I absolutely believe there could be a Man of Steel trilogy. Uh, okay. Well, I think I'm going to actually answer all of the questions. Uh, There's two more questions, and let's see. Uh, The next question is, who made the super suit? And um, 
yeah, I probably could do a whole episode on just this, but let me let me try to run through it as quickly as I can think of. Um, well, I mean, look, the film leaves it intentionally ambiguous. So like a lot of the other things that I've mentioned, uh, yeah, we can do apologetics or we can do logistics or we can do explanations, but ultimately it's not central to the story. So in a way, it almost doesn't matter. But look, we can speculate. And um, I think there's two main possibilities either that the uh, suit pre-existed. And I think that happens to be the filmmaker's uh, intention. I think it's either mentioned either in the art book or in the prequel comic or both, uh, something to that effect. But another way you could go is that the suit was fabricated by uh, Jor-El or that AI. Um, and while both are plausible, I think both also have uh, logistic issues. So that might be one of the reasons that they keep this whole um, you know, how or who made the suit kind of thing uh, a little ambiguous. With the first... You know, it's sort of the question of coincidence that there was a member of the House of L who had this available skin suit on this ship 18,000 years ago and that the crest and that the design has, you know, survived all that time, right? But, you know, we can mitigate some of those factors. Maybe it wasn't a matter of chance per se. They seem to have developed, um, well, I'm going to use a phrase here you may not you know, no, it's sort of a sci-fi reference, but Ansible technology. And Ansible is uh, the ability to communicate faster than light, right? We have an indication that they can do that two different ways. First, Lara was able to uh, find the planet uh, in the first place, right? Uh, and second, the signal beacon that Zod picked up on clearly had to travel faster than light right? For uh, Zod to perceive it and then travel to it within the time frame that they did. So in this world, there is uh, Ansible technology. And if there's Ansible technology, then Jor-El may have already known that the House of El was on Earth. He may have already anticipated it. So it's less of a coincidence and more a planned uh, intention. Or another way you could look at it is, you know, you consider the great endurance of Kryptonian technology and the stagnancy of its culture. The House of El may have been represented on every scout ship. So for all we know that there was individual from the House of El uh, in every scout ship, or perhaps the House of El was specifically charged with being like a, a particular kind of crew member on every ship. The other thing that we don't know is, you know, if it's a surname or a house name that can be captured in a single glyph. There's at least a billion individuals on Krypton, right? I'm skeptical that Jor-El is uh, exhausting that glyph for the entire planet, right? Rather, you'd expect slightly more, you know, even distribution of glyphs across the population. But you also can't expect the glyphs to be, you know, infinitely intricate or complex because at that point they lose their value or meaning as uh, chest crests. Which is to say, there must be a limit or number of glyphs, right? There can't be one billion glyphs because at that point, all the glyphs lose their meaning as, you know, a symbol because they're just too diverse to have any sort of meaning. But there also can't only be, say, eight glyphs for the entire planet to uh, to divide into because then the glyphs also lose their meaning, right? Because uh, if you're sharing the glyph with one eighth of a billion people, then big deal right? So it has to have this sort of uh, scaling um, degree of uh, individuality or meaning. I have no idea where I was going with that. Um, it's just some sort of kind of insight or uh, connection that went into my mind. So anyways, those issues of coincidence can sort of be mitigated a little bit, but it is, you know, kind of weird. And it's kind of weird that the style was so different. Well, in a way, the style, okay, well, that leads us into the second issue. So let's say Jor-El was the one that fabricated it. Well, the question there is a question of style. Why would Jor-El add so much color? 
um, when the skin suits of his era were monochromatic, right? And, you know, there's a number of questions we could ask uh, or answer. And again, it's so speculative at this point, you know, I don't know that I can really provide any meaningful insight, but, you know, it could be to break tradition. Uh, It could represent a limitation on his technology. Maybe those are the only colors available. Uh, It could represent a symbolic adoption of humanity. It could be subconsciously rendered from uh, Clark's mind. I think we'll talk about this also in another future episode, but there's all sorts of indications that there's some sort of sort of mind uh, technology interface between Krypton and um, the individuals. You know, they, the the dream machine is something that could uh, look into their minds. You know, Jor-El's AI is novel, but nonetheless not surprising to um, Zod, which means, you know, they have a certain expectation that copy unconsciousness is something that's possible, is reasonable. Jor-El was speaking English to Kal-El even before Zod ever arrived in the solar system. That may relate to their ability to uh, translate languages. It may be relate to uh, the possibility that Clark piloted the ship. That is a whole nother thing that we'll talk about in another episode. Uh, so there's, there's a number of little indications that Kryptonian minds have been able to meld with their technology or provide some sort of subconscious control or connection. So for all we know, um, this is sort of the uh, RSI or residual self-image, a term borrowed from the Matrix, of what Kryptonian garb would be, ideally in Jor-El's new Krypton, either from Jor-El's consciousness or from Clark's. And our last question. Wow, we got to the end. Um, Why didn't the Kryptonians evacuate? Oh my goodness, that is a big question. Uh, that's a huge one. That's something that I have talked about extensively with respect to the Superman tradition as a whole. And I, yeah, that, that is definitely a whole episode in itself. Look, I'll take a shot in the dark at a quick answer. I think, well, you know, if they're sentencing Zod, then perhaps they don't believe Jor-El and, you know, they're simply going on with life. That's why they don't evacuate. I don't think that's consistent with the film. I don't think that's uh, that's actually what the film is saying. So I don't think that's the answer. I think that they do believe, but I think they also agree with his premise that they're all dead. I think they're kind of fatalistic, uh, set in their ways. What they might be doing is sort of like the fatalism of the uh, the band on the Titanic that just continued to play as the Titanic sank into the sea. And yeah, we'll talk about this in a future episode. I think uh, I've rambled on long enough, right? So I think it's showing that, you know, reform is just not possible with this world. For Krypton to live on, you know, reform is absolutely necessary. But uh, look, that's another episode. So uh, thank you for indulging me, guys. I apologize if there's a lot of extra sort of rambling and off tangents. And, uh, you know, if you can follow me through all of this, thank you so much. I appreciate it. There's not going to be a whole lot of editing on this one. So I'm pretty much just going to dump this as is. Uh, if you stuck with me through this whole thing, thank you so much. From the clock, it looks like this is going to be a longer than normal episode. And hopefully it can hold you guys over. Like I said, the production of the episodes is probably going to have to slow down. I have some videos to work on and I've got real life to work on. So I've got a bunch of cases coming up. And of course, uh, you know, I've got my uh, life to get back to. So hopefully this will hold you over till the next time. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This is Dr. Awkward signing off. the answer son man of steel answers insight commentary is a proud member 
of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, the Kara's Herald Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bragg, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Saab, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com.